recorded live in the Phantasmo Lounge high atop the Walter Paisley Building in beautiful Midtown Portsmouth, Virginia. It's Phantasmo After Dark with your hosts, Rob and Phyllis Floyd. Tonight's topic, Roger Corman. Well, hey everybody, welcome back to the old podcast again. Hey, Phyllis. Hey, Rob. Tonight we're talking about Roger Corman. How can you do a cult movie podcast and not talk about Roger Corman? Well, we've talked about plenty of Roger Corman's films. We just haven't talked about him specifically. Yeah, you know, a nice overview of his whole career, which could take hours, but we're not going to take hours. No, <laughs> we're going to take maybe about an hour. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're going to try and do a very uh, non-comprehensive <laughs> overview. <Yeah. laughs> You know, most of the time when you know people talk about it, you do a tribute to a certain director or an actor. A lot of times, it's after they're gone, you know, after they're dead. And hopefully, why wait? Yeah, why wait? We love Roger Corman, as most everybody does. So we're doing something a little different this time for the podcast. Actually, well, Phyllis and I do conventions, and we give presentations on cult movies at conventions, like panel presentations or. Usually, like, we'll put together a PowerPoint presentation for the talk, you know, we give on, on the topic. And we did one on Roger Corman a couple years ago. Was it MarsCon, I think? Yes. So we're going to try to take that presentation that we did and do it, basically do it here on the podcast, almost kind of how we did it then. We're going to follow along per our same presentation. I've copied out all of the PowerPoint slides into images and we'll post that on the Phantasma After Dark Facebook page. You know, numbered slides, one through 70 or whatever the hell it is. And you guys can follow along if you want to. Yeah. We're not going to say we're on slide number whatever. We're, we're just going to start gonna have talking. You're not going to have a little ding in no. between each <laughs> It's <slide>. not a <laughs> record book. But if you want to follow along, I think it'll be pretty obvious where we are um, as we're going. But it's it's pictures like we always do. You'll get the idea. So Anyhow, if you so... if you weren't at the uh, any of those panel presentations, this will be you know kind of cool. If you were, same shit. But um, indeed. <laughs> and by the way, thank you, Tim King, for the suggestion to do it this way. We normally yeah. talk about a movie or a couple of movies, and he suggested talking about an actor or director that we like. And Roger Corman was one of the suggestions, and we love him. So yeah. here we go. And, you know, talking about Roger Corman, everybody has seen a Roger Corman film. Everybody likes a Roger Corman film, and it may be, you may not know it's a Roger Corman film. Yeah, that's true with a lot, I think. You know, I said a minute ago, well, you wait till after somebody's dead, and uh, I hope we don't jinx him, because Roger is 94 years old. And this is 2020. Yeah, and still working. <laughs> still producing films. Roger Corman, he's been called, you know, B-movie king, schlockmeister the most successful independent filmmaker in Hollywood, which he is, mm -hmm. and genius. Indeed. Produced and directed over 500 films. That's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. He is, a, he is an artiste. That's the, that is a hefty resume there. Everybody knows his reputation for making you know low-budget films. A lot of people think, you know, Roger Corman, low-budget crap, actually. And what, though that's true, he has made some low-budget crap. He's also made some, some low-budget, really good movies. You know, and always has made entertaining films. Absolutely. Which is the most important thing, you know. Yep. What was that quote that you you liked that he said? He was doing an interview with somebody, and uh, forgive me, I can't remember who the somebody was, but Roger was telling this story, and it said, um, this is his quote from the article. A while back, I was talking to an English art critic at a dinner party, and he said that motion pictures weren't art, and I thought, well, I'm going to needle this guy. I said, not only are motion pictures art, they are the only art, on the basis that all other art forms have their origins in antiquity and are therefore static. Movies are the only modern art form because they embody movement, which could not be done before, and because they are both an art and a business. They are a compromised art, but that's entirely fitting because we live in a compromised world. And that we do. We do. I love that. Yeah, that's a great quote. You know, another one that he, he had said that I like, too, is... He says, for 10 years as an independent filmmaker, I could get financing for $100,000, $200,000, $300,000 pictures. Everything had been interesting artistically, satisfying economically. But then I accepted a contract with Columbia, made a few pictures, except every idea I submitted was considered too strange, too weird. And every idea they had seemed too ordinary to me. Ordinary pictures don't make money. 
And, you know, that's true to, to a point. I mean, you know, ordinary pictures may be critically lauded, but they don't make as much money or have as many repeated viewings as something that's just really interesting and fun. Yeah. That you watch over and over again, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, not to put down the the movies that have all those awards and whatever, but... Oh, I will. Well, yeah, you can. <laughs> that's fine. Some of them are deserving of their awards, but... A lot of the ones that get all the great awards and stuff, I just find boring as crap. Well, and again, like I said, <laughs> how many times are you going to watch it over and over again? Yeah, very true. That's very true. You know, but something like, I don't know, Death Race 2000, which we'll talk about extensively in a little bit, <laughs> is one we have watched over and over again. Yeah, And absolutely. we will watch over and over again. Anything with Vincent Price, you can watch that repeatedly. Yeah. Those movies, you know, but some of these artistic Oscar-winning films that are all oh, the critics think are just wonderful. You're going to watch once. Right. That's true. You may watch again later at another time, but you're not going to be excited about watching them over and over again. You're not yeah. going to have that visceral experience. A couple things that Corman has always said, uh, it rules about making films that I think is kind of cool. He says, pictures should be about something interesting. That's his first rule. Well, it's a good rule. Which it ties into what we were just saying. <laughs> yeah. And his second rule preparation right i've always heard and we've seen a couple documentaries where the people who worked for him always said that he was always prepared super prepared before he came to set mm -hmm. you know he knew exactly what shots he wanted how many shots he wanted how he wanted to get the shots what he needed from the actors everything he was ready and prepared and he could do any job on the set himself he could do everything from directing to running the camera to sweeping up, to running the lights, you know, anything that needed to be done. And he knew how to do it, you know, right. editing, writing, you know, everything. He, he would do anything on set that needed to be done at the time to get to get the picture made. You mm -hmm. know? Oh, another thing he said, too, he primarily he worked in horror. And he did comedy. He did some of the teen sex comedies and did, he did you know, some action stuff. But all he said, all basically were similar formulas. You would build up tension break the tension with either a scream or a laugh, and then you have a lot of fun <laughs> with, the pic <laughs> with the picture, you know? He was also, too, known and has a, a reputation for making making his movies on time and on budget or under budget, you know, all the time. And again, you know, I've never heard anybody say a bad word about him and all the people that have ever worked for him, other directors and actors and such, you know? Right. Oh, oh there's this one story I, I don't want to forget, talking about making the most of your budget and your time. I forget what movie it was, but there's this one film where they're filming a dialogue scene inside of a house. And there's a dog barking outside and they can hear it. Mm -hmm. It's coming over the sound. So instead of waiting for the dog, trying to hunt down the dog and, and get him to stop and all that, which would take time. Right. They just let it roll. Just let it go. And when he went to edit, he found a, a clip of a dog barking. Okay, so the scene, they're talking, the dog's barking. They cut to a shot outside of the dog barking and cut back to the the scene of the people talking <laughs> to Genius. justify the sound of the dog barking <laughs> underneath them talking. Instead of having it ruin the, yeah, the timeline. Like, instead of it being random, like, where the hell is that coming from and why is it in this scene? <laughs> it just shows there happens to be a dog outside. Let you know, and we're back to the scene. That's great. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's great, you know. And it added... Maybe a second or two to the running time. <laughs> Genius. Another cool thing about Corman that a lot of people know, some people don't know, is he helped a lot of big-name people get their start. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of big-name directors and actors might not have had a career or might have had a tougher time getting their career if it wasn't for Roger Corman. A few of these hacks, these no-names you may have heard of. <laughs> Ron Howard. Ron Howard? Who's that? Opie Cunningham. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows Ron Howard. Yeah. I mean, geez, you splash, cocoon. What was it? What's the uh, Apollo 13? Yeah. Everything. And, of course, Happy Days and Andy yeah. Griffith Show right, and right. all that. But he, yeah, he worked for Corman early on, did before Happy Days. Yeah, I was going to say, this must have been after Opie. Yeah, this was after <laughs> Opie. He, he acted in a couple pictures for Corman, and he directed a picture. I think his first directing job was for Roger Corman. Mm -hmm. And... He he always says that if you if you work for Roger, if you direct a movie for Roger, rather, you'll be prepared for anything Holly, Hollywood <laughs> throws at you. Nice. 
And in one of the documentaries, he tells a couple stories that we about how to Corman told him how to get certain shots, how to use the light during the day if you're filming location, you know. Mm-hmm. And I'm not going to go into that whole long story, but because you can watch that documentary for yourself. But uh, <laughs> he said it sounds kind of cheesy what he told him. He said, but damn if I didn't do it on and one of the big budget pictures he did with uh was it Far and Away I think he used the same technique to get catch the light as it, at the end of the day. Oh wow! For the scene, he said, you know, it sounds like a cheesy low budget trick. He said, but it works. I use it on multi million dollar movie, you know, <laughs> and it worked. Oh, another Jonathan Dim. Or Jonathan Demi, Science of the Lambs, mm-hmm. etc. You know, uh, he worked for Corman early on, and he's quoted as saying that this is a great. I love this. Having lunch with Roger is the equivalent of four years worth of film school. Save a lot of money. Just go talk yeah. to Roger. And I've heard somebody else say that too. That you know they they'd go to have lunch with Roger and talk about film, talk about what they're working on, and the education you get from just talking to Roger during lunch is more than you're going to get at film school, more wow. practical, you know, useful than you're going to get at a, at a film school. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh, some other names, uh, Francis Ford Coppola mm-hmm. worked for Roger, James Cameron, a fellow named Martin Scorsese. The one thing I learned from Roger was total preparation, but I, I've never seen anybody just be so extraordinary in terms of pacing of a picture and um, knowing, knowing the audience that it's for, you know, it's remarkable. Robert De Niro early on. Mm-hmm. And pretty much everybody knows Jack Nicholson got his start working for Corman. Right, right. And there's a great quote, this little bit of an interview in one of the documentaries. Uh, in fact, you can find this little clip on YouTube. He was, you know, my main connect, my my lifeblood to whatever I thought I was going to be as a person. Clip goes on. Jack Nicholson starts talking about how grateful he is to Corman giving his start. And Jack starts to tear up. Yeah. It was amazing. And Jack, you know, what he started in uh, the, ter- well, a little shop in the Terror. Mm-hmm. And then I think the Raven. Uh, so he did a few pictures with Corman, you know, right, we'll, we'll right. talk about it in a minute. But, you know, Jack friggin' Nicholson. <laughs> you know? yeah. And there's a handful of others too. Joe Dante and a few other guys that worked for Corman. The, the coolest thing about that is a lot of them said thanks to Corman. Yeah. By giving him a little bit part in one of, some of their pictures. Right, right. You know? What was um what the howling? Yeah, he has a walk on in the howling. He's in, I think it was a senator in Apollo thirteen, and yeah. a doctor in something else, and he's another body guy. bags. Yeah, body bags, and he's another guy in another movie. Uh, he just kind of shows up and might have a line or two, might just have a walk on, you know. Right, just a little nod of thanks for yeah, helping you know. me out. Yeah, yeah, cool. They're showing their appreciation, you know. Now. Corman's list, like we said, 500 films he, he produced or directed. That would take us days to talk about all those. So we're just going to cherry pick some of our favorites. Or know. some of the ones that are just Or important. some of those that are important, yeah, from his career. And you got to start with It Conquered the World. Of course. <laughs> I love this movie. Everybody has seen or knows Beulah, the, the alien monster in this. Mm-hmm. The big, they always say she's a big vegetable monster or something. Because <laughs> she like has no legs. Yeah. <laughs> goofiest looking thing ever, but I love it. But it's 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 iconic as hell. It and is. the poster's great, you know? <laughs> it's awesome. And the, the movie itself, it's a low-budget Roger Corman picture. You know it is, because I think Dick Miller shows up at the very end. <laughs> and just a bit part, you know. I think he's in that. But the cast, you got Beverly Garland, mm. Peter Graves, Lee Van Cleef. Right. Okay. And it's Great a good, cast. solid, atomic age, 50s B picture. Yep. It's a good story. The acting's first rate. It's just the monster is super cheesy. Yeah. If the monster were better, it I don't think it would really be a, a B picture, <clears throat> so to speak, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, it still would, but it wouldn't be as, well, as yeah. picked on as it you is. You know what I mean. Yeah. yeah it exactly. wouldn't be as, as, you know. Yeah. That, that's a better way yeah. of saying it. Now, after it conquered the world, you got to talk about Little Shop of Horrors. Right. The original Little Shop of Horrors, the Which non-musical is, version. Right. And, you know, it's a really interesting story about how it got made and what it was made from. Yeah. They made that this movie in two days and one night. It's crazy. And I believe he wrote it in, like, three days. Mm-hmm. And they filmed it. They were using, like, leftover film from a previous picture or something. Mm-hmm. You know, and there's a whole long story behind it and all that. But the coolest thing about it 
well, one of the coolest things is is Jack Nicholson. I believe it's his first picture or second picture, and he plays the Bill Murray part. You know, Bill Murray in the musical, right, rather, right? The masochist dental patient, and Jack being wide eyed and kind of maniacal and laugh. It's it's and it's not great. not a Jack <laughs> typical Jack maniacal way. You yeah, know? and very young. Yeah, very young. Uh, if you haven't seen this, do yourself a favor. It's, I believe, it's public domain. So I think it is now. So everywhere, there's, there's, you can find this anywhere. YouTube, yeah. everywhere. If you're a fan of the musical and you've never seen this, yeah, you should. It, it's a little bit of an eye opener to see where the musical came from. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's different. It's very different. Yeah, the yeah. story is the same. You know, the plot line is the same, but it's it's very different. Uh, some of the characters are quite a bit different. Audrey is different. The dentist is different. Yeah, I can't actually you know. remember the ending. Was the ending uh, glum? Uh, well, not really. I think okay. I can't remember the ending of this either, but the musical has two different endings. Yeah, I know that. And that's why I can't remember how the yeah. original movie ended. But that's okay. Anyway, maybe I'll watch it again soon. Yeah. And it's, like I said, very easy to get a hold of. Mm-hmm. Now. Once you get past those two, you get into Corman's Poe series of films, which is his his shining mark, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. So we're going to talk about all of them. <laughs> well, pretty much, yeah. Just to touch on yeah. them. You start off with the terror, which you say, okay, well, another one, Dick Miller's in it. Um, but you say, <laughs> Boris Karloff and yep. Jack Nicholson in the same movie. Wow. The movie itself is okay. It's not yeah. great. It's not super memorable or anything. It's okay. It's beautiful. Yeah. The colors are crisp and sharp, just like in every one of these films. And I will repeat myself in each one of these films and say that. Yeah, that's really true. Yeah. You it, know, it seems like they all have that. Well, and you, you'll you say that, I think, soon, that they all have kind of a similar feel. And yeah. they all have they all have a very stylized look that is yeah. similar. Well, and that was on that was on by purpose. design. Right. Yeah. Corman said that Poe, in his view, Poe worked with the unconscious mind. And the unconscious mind is unaware of the outside world. So up until Tomb of Legia, all his Poe pictures he shot, they were all in studio mm-hmm. on a soundstage. Right. No location shots, no outside shots. Everything was inside. And that gave it more of a, a dreamlike quality, an un- unusual feel to the whole thing, you know? Mm-hmm. And which is true, and they all have a mood, yeah. you know, a kind of a somber, uneasy feel to them, you yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, and once you, like I said, once you get past the terror, it starts to get in a full swing. A lot of that has to do with Vincent Price too. Yeah, of course. When you were trying to kind of explain that to me, and you used yeah. the Batman movie as an example. Oh yeah. Tim Burton. That kind of made it hit home for yeah. me. Yeah, the Tim Burton Batman movie. The entire thing was shot. On a soundstage. Right. All the outside shots of Gotham City were inside. Right. Nothing was on location anywhere. It was all built and designed. So even inside, even with the scenes that were outside, felt like you were inside. Yeah, yeah. You know? And, it does give it a different And feeling. has a different, and like I say, kind of an, an out-of-time, dreamlike feel to it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I never really thought about it until you put it that way yeah and I, I do get it yeah it makes sense and these do these poe films are yeah just like that mm-hmm. you got a house of usher okay which is the the first vincent price corman poe film for hundreds of years evil thoughts and evil deeds have been committed within these walls the house itself is evil now again gorgeous to look at beautifully shot corman knew what to do with the camera to get oh, the yeah. most out of a scene uh, that's for damn sure. And Vincent Price is just amazing. He's Vincent freaking Price. Yeah, if you don't like Vincent Price, we can't be friends. <laughs> all of these films, I believe, all these Poe films, I believe are readily available. DVD, possibly Blu-ray. I'm not sure. And it, most everything shows up on YouTube for a little while, sooner or later, if it's not already. Yeah. Or the Roku that all the kids like nowadays. Usher and then Pit the Pendulum was the next one they did. Right. Which everybody's kind of familiar with that one, I think. Yeah, I think uh, that's a more popular one. Yeah, and that one, Vincent Price tweaks out a little bit in that one. <laughs> <laughs> he does. Again, every one of these, I'll say it repeatedly, as you get tired of hearing it, beautiful to look at. Just a feast for the eyes in these these films. The next on the list is The Raven, which, again, gorgeous. I should like this movie. <laughs> it's not, not one of your favorites. I don't hate it. 
it's well, just it's a comedy. It's a comedy, and I like horror comedies, but I don't like every horror comedy. No, I get it. And this, you've got Vincent Price, Boris Karloff, Peter Lorre, Jack Nicholson. I mean, you should really love this. I movie. should love this movie like no other. Okay, <laughs> and it's good. It's just it, a little silly for me. I think I, it just didn't. I don't know, it's just, it doesn't resonate with me at all. So this is one of those, every couple of years, I'll pull back out and go, well, let me give this another shot. Yeah. Let me see, you know, if, I, if I've changed my opinion. And each time it's like, eh, no, it just still doesn't do it for me. I like it okay. It's all right. Again, beautiful. Yeah, it is. It, you know. The Raven, I mean, I don't know if it's just the nature of the Raven is so popular, Edgar Allan Poe story. Yeah. Or what, but this is one of the ones I actually knew about before any of the other oh, okay. Corman yeah. films. Yeah. I knew this one, so I, I don't know what that means exactly, but <laughs> I knew it. Anyhow. Now, next on the list, The Haunted Palace. Amazing. I love that is one. It's a very unusual film because it's a Lovecraft story, I believe, mm-hmm. but shot in the Poe style. The Roger Corman, the Roger style. Corman Poe style, yeah, <laughs> and I'm not sure. I think maybe Haunted Palace might have been the title of a Poe story. That I can't remember. I can't remember exactly. I, I you know, I should have made I'm a not, note of that. You should have. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, take my word for it. It's part Lovecraft, part Poe, and you watch and the all movie. Roger Corman and all Roger Corman. Yeah, you'll watch the movie and you can tell the Sea Town and the you know and, and all the Lovecraftian touches to it. But it's got Vincent Price and Lon Chaney Jr. Mm. Okay, I'm sold right there. Yeah. And again, beautifully shot, super moody and creepy and uneasy feeling throughout most of the film. You know, it's one of those I would like to go back and watch again because I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah. Now, we actually did a podcast just on this movie, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Actually, if you go back, uh, I forget what number it was, but look back at some of the past podcasts. We do one just on the Haunted Palace because... We watched. I had never seen it up until yeah, that it, point. Yeah, it really stood out. Yeah, it was and amazing. I, we were like, "Wow!" It's really, really pretty. The um, some of the shots that are in it. I mean, this is true of a lot of the the Poe yeah. stuff, but some of the shots that they chose are just outstandingly fun. They're yeah. just really well, you know, really a fun. lot of movies nowadays. The, a lot of these directors nowadays, cinematographers, what have you, from my money, don't know how to set up a shot, hmm. how to use a scene to convey mood and story Mm. they depend on moving the camera jerky around yeah or getting close-ups of the actors talking yeah a lot of it or they have a lot of cgi yeah you know when when they first introduced the shaky cam to make you feel like you're part of the film i mean i understood when that first started happening what they were trying to do and it was kind of a neat approach but then it got used a lot and now i feel like it's a crutch when somebody can't figure oh, yeah. out what else to do what's well, like when they try to use it for a fight scene you can't see the fight scene yeah why have I fighters in there i i know? really would rather just have a static shot and watch the yeah. fight yeah hong kong directors now to shoot fight scenes yeah yeah absolutely but uh, watch this... the ip man films those oh, are yeah. great but this corman would put the camera there would set up the shot with with the actors in the shot and the set and the location whatever and it was gorgeous, and just a still of it makes you feel something. Yeah. And every one of these films is like that, some more than others, like Mask of the Red Death. I want to help save your soul so you can join me in the glories of hell. No, never. So much in that movie. That one, the color in that just jumps out at you. And There's no way to describe that it's film. It's subtle, color, but, it, but it's blatant at the same it time. It is. The color, it's all so oversaturated, yeah. which you would... You say that and you think, oh, that doesn't sound good. But oh my God, yeah. it's amazing. And there's bright colors where there shouldn't be, but it doesn't look out of place. No. You almost don't notice it. You just kind of see it, feel it, see yeah. it, you know? Yeah. I know the shots where they're going in from the, the bright red to oh, the, the different rooms. To the, yeah. Oh. And the story. It's a great story, too. Every, you know, if, if you're familiar with the it story. Is. Yeah. Uh, and Vincent, again, at his smarmy best. Now, then you get to Tomb of Lygia. Lygia, the tale of terror Edgar Allan Poe thought his greatest. The masterfully macabre performance of Vincent Price together bring to life the undead. This, Corman was tired of shooting everything inside, so he decided to shoot Tomb of Lygia outside as much as possible, in daylight, to do something completely different. Which is unusual for this moody, dark Poe film. Mm-hmm. 
a lot of it shot inside the castle, inside you know the mansion castle home, mm-hmm. but a, a lot of it is shot outside too. And and this is one of those where, of course, Vincent had a different look in every film, but a very iconic look as Lygia in this. I love this one. Yeah. He's got this top hat and the glasses. That wrap around, these dark shades oh. that wrap around the side of his eyes. Vincent's rocking that outfit. Yeah, That's that amazing. Long coat. If you've seen Elvira's second movie, Elvira's Haunted Hills, it's her tribute to the Corman Poe films. And Richard O'Brien is in it, and he's got this look mm-hmm. as... Lygia. Because it's a great look. It is. It's, it's just, like I said, it's iconic like as hell. And you look at some of the pictures we're going to post from this. If you haven't seen this movie, it's going to make you want to watch this movie. Oh, absolutely. The Oh, it's gorgeous. As a matter of fact, I want to watch it again after <laughs> soon after seeing these pictures. Maybe yeah. we'll watch it tonight. Yeah, we should watch it. A couple of these pictures, it, it, just FYI, if you're following along on the Facebook images, some of these are just extra shots to show how moody. Yeah. The atmosphere is and on the how films. He's... It's not all Tomb of Lygia after you get past that first few shots. Oh, yeah. Well, and also to show how he set up a shot. Mm-hmm. It's just gorgeous. The man knew how to make a scene work inside a camera. Yeah. That's for sure. Now, after the Poe series throughout the 60s, the 70s show up, and Corbin becomes king of the drive-in. You know, he understood his audience where the money was to be made. And he takes a total 180 from Edgar Allan Poe. <laughs> yeah, and he starts making some of these teen sex comedies, dramas with a, you know quite a bit of nudity, women in prison pictures, a lot of action. You know, like he did was it Night Call Nurses, Candy Stripe Nurses, Private Duty Nurses, Private Duty Nurses. You know, and produced these through American International, but for some reason, quite a few of these he didn't take the credit as producer, and I'm not sure if. Uh, there was something he did where it was a un- it was a non-union picture, so he couldn't have his name on it. And I don't know if that applies. I don't think that applies to any of these. But it could have been that he let somebody else have the producer's credit to give them some, you know, a credit. Mm, maybe so. You know, because he was that kind of guy. He he loved to help people out. Yeah. And he didn't need to take the credit. I mean, as long as he was getting paid, he didn't need the credit. <laughs> <laughs> All right. One of these uh, early these nurse exploitation pictures. Uh, nurse exploitation. Yeah. Well, there was a ton of them, you yeah. know, and he did a handful of them. But you see people show up like uh, Paul Gleason, mm-hmm. who was Dick, the assistant principal in uh, Breakfast, Breakfast Club. Club. Right. Yeah. He was like a doctor and orderly in one of these. Then you get to like the big dollhouse, mm. caged heat, women in prison pictures behind bars. And Pam. And then you get Pam Greer. Oh, love yes, her. Man. Pam Greer. Sid Haig was in a couple of these. A lot of other grindhouse driving names show up and. You know, you'll hear people not in the know who, or who don't get it or who don't really pay attention to these films on the surface will say, oh, they're misogynistic. You know, oh, the women in oh, chains, yeah. women in prison. But if you watch these films. You realize it's just the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. The women are, are in prison. Yep. They break out. And sure, you've got some gratuitous nudity. Nudity, of course. Well, that's what gets you in the theater there, you know. Yep. And it's always pleasant to look at. But these, they're always strong women Strong lead characters are are the women. Absolutely. And they always, by the end of the picture, get the best of the people that have been putting them down. Yeah. You know, they they always either they kill the bad guys or they beat the snot out of them. Mm -hmm. And they and they're always strong, you know, as they say, a strong independent woman. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. That's what these characters are. Yeah. The posters, of course, you see them behind bars. It's and it's exploitation. It's to get your attention, it's to get you in the, you know, in the movie and it's part of the story yeah you got to have some kind of story they have to get got to get to your lowest point before you can the comeback means anything yeah you well know? i mean this is this is an interesting story it's a story that doesn't need to rub your face in it it's just being told naturally and the woman comes out on top yeah, in the, the story end. happens yeah it's not put in your face that this is what's going to happen. Exactly. And this is what you need to think about it. Yeah. You know, like a, a couple of the modern pictures that have done that, that horrible Charlie's Angels movie they tried to, I was a, supposed to be what was called a sequel or a remake or what. Oh, I yeah. never saw that. No. Well, it wasn't that long enough. But who wanted to see it? Uh, not It many. had three three women in it that had no charisma, mm. no appeal really. And it was put in your face that this is, you know, everything you hear about it was... Women power, strong women movie. It, it was telling you that this is what it was going to be. I mean, just and that men the name, suck and the all that. The name alone 
tells you what you need to know. It's Charlie's Angels. Yeah. The TV show told you that. Yeah. You, you that don't you, need to be You know told. it's about women that are going to kick ass. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the worst one was that Black Christmas remake. Oh, God. That second one or third one that came out had, a couple I years ago. I had ago. blocked that from my memory. Okay, Black Christmas is a horror film. You know it's a horror picture. Yeah. Okay? Right. The poster and the trailer almost led you to believe nothing about it being a horror picture. It looked like it was just a bunch of girls going to kick somebody's ass. The remake, you mean. The remake, yeah. yeah. The The story is a handful of girls stay home, stay at the, at the sorority house over Christmas break. They don't right. go home. And a killer kills them off one by one. Simple story. Mm-hmm. At the end, the killer gets it somehow. In this picture, the poster, you wouldn't know that's what it was about. It's got like... Three or four, four or five girls on the front with baseball bats and like, I don't know, barbed wire and maybe some Christmas lights, but they're all standing there, full body shots of them standing there like they get ready to kick somebody's ass. <laughs> it just gave you the ending away. Yeah. If you know they're going to kick his ass, there's no suspense. There's no build up. There's no tension. You're not, you don't care. You're not worried about anything's going to happen to him. So it broke Roger's rules. You don't build up any tension and then yeah. release it. <laughs> the poster tells you and the trailer shows them preparing to kick his and it's like, why do you even need to watch the story then? True. There's nothing. There's no tension there. There's no, like I said. There's no. It was ridiculous. It, <laughs> it was a total fail. Missed somebody who does not understand the genre or what they're trying to do. But Corman's pictures, on the other hand, there is tension. There is build up, and it's drive in and exploitation, and it's fun. It is. And it's got some beautiful women in them, and some tough women, and they kick ass. And going along those lines. Gotta mention Big Bad Mama. Oh, beautiful Angie Dickinson. And Bill Shatner. Bill Shatner. The Shat's in it. Uh, it's a, what, a 20s gangster type picture. And yeah. she's like uh, her and her daughters creating a crime wave across the, the country. <laughs> That's one of those I need to watch. I haven't seen that in so long. I need to go back and watch that again. Yeah, I don't really remember much about it. I just, I remember Shat. Yeah, we'll have to check that out again. Watch that soon. Yeah. That's pretty easy to find, I imagine. Just have an honorable mention there, but we have to talk about probably our favorite Corman picture. Yeah, I think we both agree this is our favorite. Death Race 2000. Every car and deadly weapon. You finish first, or not at all. Death Race 2000. Awesome. <laughs> Death Race 2000. And we did, we did a podcast on this, too. We on did. this one by itself. This one is so much fun. It's a fantastic film. It's It's cheesy. And it's over the top, but it's not, it holds it in just enough. Yeah. But it's also poignant and meaningful. Well, it's a lot <laughs> of social commentary in this picture. Yeah. Way more than you think. Yeah. For this kind of and film. And it, it's not in your face. It's not telling you there's social commentary no. is a thing. No. It happens through the course of the story. Well, you know what that's called? Good writing. Yeah. Good <laughs> writing, good filmmaking. And again, this is a movie we will watch over and over again. So it's. One of the greatest films ever made. Yeah. On that yeah. alone. Yeah. So, you know, when, when I was a kid, we used to play this game when you're in the car, when you're bored and you see people crossing the street and you're like, oh, look, you know, hit that guy, you get 20 points and you hit that guy, you get 50. Obviously, nobody's hitting anybody. No, but you would just say that. You just say that yeah. as a joke because you're bored in the car and what else are you going to do, you yeah. know, other than the license plate game. Yeah. Okay. We got tired of that one. <laughs> so... I think this is where that comes from. Oh, it did. I mean, no, I never saw from. this movie <laughs> when I was young, and my dad sure as hell never saw this no. movie because he would never have watched this movie. My my family was Mennonite. We wouldn't watch this. No. But I somehow knew it. Well, it, it just it became, got into the pop culture, and it did. It I po- learned part it. of the pop culture lexicon. Yeah, so this it came from this. Yeah, this movie. Um, of course, it's about the in the far flung future of the year two thousand. <laughs> Sports have been outlawed, and the national sport is the cross-country death race, where these flamboyant drivers, characters, race across country, and they earn points by hit and run of pedestrians. Mm -hmm. David Carradine. Plays Frankenstein. Plays Frankenstein, the greatest winningest driver ever, who was put together every time he's crashed, re-put together with... Metal and silicone and whatever. whatever. Yeah. Uh, and he wears a mask because his face is supposedly scarred all up. Yeah. And it looks awesome. His car is awesome. Mary Warrenoff, you know, Grindhouse Queen. Then you got Martin Cove, Cobra Kai, Sensei. Mm-hmm. 
Fred Grandy, gopher from Love Boat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And a young guy making his, I think his motion picture debut, Sylvester Stallone. Right. Machine Gun Joe. Machine Gun Joe, yeah. <laughs> the drivers are Frankenstein, Matilda the Hun, great name, Calamity Jane. Did I say Nero the Hero? No. Nero, Nero the Hero and Machine Gun Joe. Yep. And they all, their cars are decked out, themed, like, uh, I mean, they to go with like, their names. They look like life-size Matchbox cars that are yeah. crazy. Like, there's a, it looks like a a monster, and one's got machine guns yeah, on one, I mean, it's, and one has, like, a bullhorns, and looks like, a, and one looks like a German tank. And yeah. They're, again, they're cheesy, but they're awesome. I would drive Frankenstein's monster car every <laughs> damn day if I had that car. I would love to have that car. Yeah. The thing that always cracked me, well, okay, lots about this movie cracks me up, but you hear that this movie is about hit and run, and you make points and blah, blah, blah. But it's not just like random people. It's Everybody knows this is happening. Everybody yeah. knows the death race and where the people are going to be going. So you think, okay, they're going to get off the road so that they don't get hit. But some people try to get hit. Like it's a, a thing. Like the, the cult of Frankenstein. These people like throw themselves in front of Frankenstein's yeah. car so that they can rack up you his You have points. to see. If you've never seen this it's movie. Insane. Cut off the podcast right now. <laughs> Go watch this movie. And, and come, back. come back. This is so much damn fun. There's it so is. Much. And like I said, the social commentary, it applies to today with the government and with the media and the press. Oh, God. And this movie was made in the 70s. It's amazing. It Scary. Is. Oh, we could talk about it. We've already done a podcast on this. We don't yeah. need to keep going on this. Yeah. Well, you know, I love it, so I'll harp <laughs> on it. But don't, yeah. We, oh, yeah. We need to stop. We're just talking Roger Corman, not just Death Race. Yeah. They did a remake or a reimagining oh, yeah. called Death Race, and it has nothing to do the Jason Stath- with this Statham at all. Movie. Yeah. It horrible. Was horrible. We didn't even watch it. Just looking at clips of it and watching the trailer, it's like, okay, it's only the title. I did watch. Oh, did you? Yeah, you saw I it. watched oh, it. Oh, okay. And it was terrible. Well, basically, only the title and then the driver named Frankenstein. Yeah. That's all. Yeah. It had nothing to no do with No social commentary, this. nothing to do with the original movie. Why even call it that? I, you know, because they wanted to take the, the tag on the name. of the name. Right on the coattails. Yeah. yeah. Awful. Also, terrible. now, we got excited a couple years ago, Roger Corman. Yeah. Himself produced a sequel called Death Race 2050. And we yeah. were like, oh boy. Yep. Couldn't wait. Because oh, he so gets excited. It. Yeah. Obviously. Unfortunately, the first 15 minutes or so are we're pretty good. good. Yeah. And we were thinking, okay. Okay. This, we're there. Yeah. This is going to be cool. And then it just falls apart. The rest of the movie just falls apart. Well, to start out with, Frankenstein, his outfit and mask look dumb. Yeah. Wasn't that. Um... Manu Bene? Yeah, the guy from Spartacus. Yeah. yeah. Am I saying his name right? I think so. Something like that. Anyway. Yeah. It, the Frankenstein outfit was just horrible. I don't even remember what the car looked like. I can't It wasn't as cool as the ones in the original movie. Yeah. I mean, it's just honestly very forgettable. And I was so devastated because we loved the first one yeah. so much. And, and it, we thought, and this is Corman. It it's so much be potential. Great. It you know, started we, out pretty good. Yeah. But it just fell the hell apart. Yeah, and I didn't do any research after we were disappointed to find out if if Corman yeah. just produced it or if he wrote it directed. I don't know. Matter of fact, I don't know if we even still we we bought it on Blu-ray yeah. so we could watch and it. We probably still have it. I don't know. I might have thrift stored it. Oh God, that's yeah. so sad. Well, we weren't gonna watch it again. That's true. So I don't know if we even still have it. Anyhow, well, if anybody else has seen the the sequel and has a different opinion, let us know because yeah. I'm curious. I mean, you know, you're entitled to your wrong opinion, but you know, <laughs> <You're> terrible. <laughs> Uh, now to move on from that, you got to mention Rock and Roll High School. This has got such a big cult following. It does. Corman produced picture the Ramones, Mary Warnall, Par Bertel, that big giant, li- mouse. giant mouse. Fun picture, comedy. It's good a music. It's a classic. It's yeah. got, like I said, it's got such a huge cult following. Important in Corman's career. Absolutely, definitely. Mm-hmm. I'm not a huge fan of it. I don't dislike it. Right. But I'm just not a big Ramones fan either. And again, I don't dislike the Ramones. They've just never resonated with me, yeah, you know, like yeah. other bands have. So, well, I mean, of of this type of film, you would you're more was oh almost famous, almost famous. That's oh, rock and roll movies, yeah, yeah almost yeah. famous is incredible. that's the one incredible. That one, that's Rob's kind of yeah. That one uh, film, yeah, is, is kind of personal to me. Yeah, yeah, you know. Well, and that's what that's what this is meant to be for. This particular, I guess so, genre yeah. of person yeah. or, I mean, or of people. It's a fun movie. Yeah, yeah. I enjoyed the hell out of it. You know. Yeah. And like I said, it does. It's got a huge following, and rightly so. Now, you cannot talk about Corman's career without talking about 
the ill-fated, live-action, Roger Corman-produced Fantastic Four movie. It's clobbering time. What is this, Rob? Yeah, well, I was going to say, what is that you say? <laughs> Back in the early 90s, it was supposed to come out in 92. There was a company, I, I want to say maybe it was New Constantine, had bought the rights from Marvel to produce a live-action Fantastic Four film in the late 80s. The rights were about to expire and revert back to Marvel, so they had to have something produced by a certain date. Right. So they approached Roger Corman and said, hey, can you make a live-action Fantastic Four movie for us for a million dollars? Well, yes, I can, Roger said. said. And so he went about producing this film. Now, a million dollars, you got to put that into perspective. The Marvel movies that are out now, a million bucks won't cover the catering <laughs> on these movies, okay? They won't cover the transportation budget to get stars back and forth <laughs> to the, you know, the sets and all that. Um, I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, a million dollars is nothing on a movie. One million dollars to make the entire film. Now, granted, pretty much virtually unknown actors who've done just... A couple of the actors have done a little bit, but nobody you'd really recognize much. I don't know. No big names. Mm-hmm. Everybody that worked on this film wanted so bad to make a live-action Fantastic Four movie that most of the crew donated their time. You know, most of the camera, the effects, all those guys worked a lot of overtime and did a lot of it gratis because they were excited about making a live-action Fantastic Four film. Yeah. I mean, you got to figure. Batman. What year was this? Well, this was 92 is when it was supposed to come 92? out. 92? So okay. Batman, Tim Burton Batman, the first live-action film since 77. What, yeah, 78. Superman right. was 1989. Wow. Was when okay. Keaton's Batman came out. Yeah. This was going to be something. A fanta- a team film? Are you mm-hmm. kidding me? Yeah. Because what? It took, Big deal. took till The Avengers before it worked. <laughs> sure. You know, just how many years? Well, Ten mean, years ago. Blade, Blade was really good, but it didn't get the hype that no. but I'm talking about happened a t- later. A team film. Oh, though. a team film. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. X-Men. I'm sorry. The X-Men crap oh, films. Oh, true. Yeah. True. Now- a million dollars. The money went into the thing suit and yep. the doom suit. Yeah. The spandex Fantastic Four jumpsuits. Not a great choice. Though design accurate to the comic, the execution, the seamstress work on them is not great. And they chose the light blue and white scheme that uh, yeah. from the burn era Fantastic Four yeah. instead of the black and dark blue from the cl- you know, classic FF. I mean, I would imagine if they chose the the darker costumes, it probably would look better than... Yeah, but there's certain things they did, two. like the, the collars around the necks are yeah. too big and they should have been smaller and the fours should have been up higher. Just little things. I mean, the design is right, it's just the execution is not bad. Yeah. Because I've seen the same it's costumes... It's not good, you mean. Isn't, yeah, it's not good. I've seen the same costumes that Amateurs have, have made at conventions yeah. that look incredible, Amazing. that should have been in the movie. Mm-hmm. But that being said, the thing suit is, pardon the word, fantastic. <laughs> you look at the pictures that we're po- we'll post here on the Facebook page. We have one picture, side-by-side comparison from the big budget movie mm-hmm. to the Corman movie. And the big budget picture looks like it's from a low budget movie. And the low budget movie picture looks like it's from a big budget. It looks... The thing looks like he walked off the comic book page. Yeah. Doom, the same way. The Doom costume, it looks like Dr. Doom. You don't have to guess. You don't have to wonder. It's Doom. The only problem with it is the material they use for his cloak and his mm-hmm. tunic. It looks like cheaper material. Yeah, yeah. The, the quality of the material yeah. is definitely But lower. the design, it, they didn't change it. They didn't feel the need to like, got to be different because we're... We're above making a comic book movie, but you're making a comic book movie <laughs> is the thing. And the doom. <laughs> the the effects in this movie are, are really cheesy. Granted, like I said, a million bucks. Yeah, the, the stretching is yeah. hilarious. And at the end and the the invisible girl effects, yeah, you know, well, that's easy to do, you know. Yeah. <laughs> when she does the force fields, that's kinda cool. We don't have any pictures of when Johnny flames on, but they he doesn't flame on throughout the whole movie. He shoots fireballs out of his hands. Mm. That's an easy effect to do. But at the end, he completely flames on and flies. Well, they did that with very primitive computer animation. Hmm. And it is really cheesy, but hey, we're just excited to see it at the time. You right. Know? Well, the thing that is really sad about this is 
you know, they they went through the effort to put this whole movie together. Yeah. The cast and the crew, super excited to get it done. Oh, yeah. They they got it all finished. The cast is going out and publicizing it on their own dime. Yeah, going to conventions and things. And, and... They put out a teaser poster. Oh, yeah. There was a teaser poster in theaters. Yeah. But New Constantine Pictures had no... No intention. No intentions at all of releasing this film. Ever. No. They had to spend the money and had to get something made to keep the rights. And for whatever good it did them, because they didn't keep them after that. Long. Yeah. But the movie was made, and then they shelved it. Yeah. And nobody working on it was aware that was going to happen. It's just so sad. Yeah. There's, I mean, and just crappy. Oh, yeah. There's a documentary you can watch on YouTube and on Roku and Amazon Prime or whatever called Doomed. And it's a story behind the making of the Corman Fantastic Four film. And it's really pretty good. Yeah. You, you should, if you're interested in it, you should watch that. And yeah. first... And then watch the movie. Yeah, even if you're not crazy about the Fantastic Four or you're not super interested in the superhero film itself, you should watch the the doomed documentary because the story behind how it was filmed and what oh, happened yeah. is just fascinating. How, yeah, how Hollywood can screw you over. Yeah, it, it was a fascinating story and really just so sad. Yeah. The movies is available. You can get it bootleg at conventions and things. And it, I don't know if it's on you. It might be on YouTube. Maybe come to think it of it, it probably is. I mean, it's never been released. It's anywhere never been released at all, anything. and it never, it probably never will be. Right. I don't yeah. know how it even got out. Nah, things get out. I'm, well, yeah. I mean, yeah. Obviously, somehow it got out, but <laughs> somebody knows a guy <laughs> that right. knows a guy. <laughs> now, after that, you, we can't leave talking about Roger Corman without talking about Dick Miller for a little bit. Dick Miller is the guy who was in. He made about twenty different pictures with Corman, and he's been in other people's pictures. And people who work for Corman have used him, too, mm-hmm. you know, later on. Right. He's that guy. And I say that guy, Dick Miller. There's a documentary called That Guy, Dick Miller. Yeah. That you need to watch if you like Corman. He's and all great. Those. You see his face and you know exactly who yeah. he is, even if you don't know his name. He was in he was the lead in Bucket of Blood. And and he's been in. Oh, God. Ton, every other Corman picture. It seems it seems like he's been in every other Corman picture. Yeah. And just one of those go-to guys. You want a Dick Miller type guy. You get Dick Miller. I mean, you know? what was he in that we did recently? And I was like, holy crap! Wait, wasn't he the uh, janitor guy in the? Oh, in Chopping Mall. In Chopping Mall. Yeah, <laughs> we're watching Chopping Mall, and all of a sudden, it's tur- janitor turns around. It's like, ah, oh, it's Dick, Dick Miller. Miller. <laughs> of course, Mary Warren, all of them, Paul Bartel were at the very beginning right, of that too. Right, yeah. So there's that connection. Hmm, you know? What's that got to do with Roger Corman? <laughs> yeah. Now, finally, in 2008. Corman got an Oscar, a well-deserved Oscar. The Oscar was for unparalleled ability to nurture aspiring filmmakers by providing an environment no film school could match. So they made an Oscar just for Roger Corman. Yes, they did. That's great. And I bet. And very well-deserved. Yeah, I bet a lot of these directors who got their start with Corman. Yeah. Petitioned the Academy and made them do it. (laughs) They said, look, he needs an Oscar. Yeah, he deserves an Oscar. Yeah, and he does. He, you know, and again, I think I said this at the beginning, I have never heard in all the interviews and things I've I've seen, anybody have a bad word to say about Corman. Yeah. You know, he was a perfectionist. He was, uh, well, I'm talking about when he was directing yeah, and stuff yeah. too. I think he just produces nowadays, but he's still working. Yeah. He knew what he wanted to do. He got it done. He knew what he wanted to get from you and he got it out of you because yeah. you didn't want to disappoint him. Right. You know, and he was just pleasant to work with. One of the cool things is all the major studios nowadays are making Roger Corman exploitation pictures. <laughs> they just don't call it that. Yeah, they're just doing it on a bigger budget. Yeah. But you think about all the big action movies, anything that's that has ha- centered around like sex appeal or whatever, sex, you know, mm-hmm. that's an exploitation picture. All the superhero movies yeah. are, are exploitation movies, you mm-hmm. know. Corman... They are, all this stuff, it's Roger Corman pictures. It's just <laughs> made by a big studio on a big budget with too many hands in a pot interfering in them. Yeah. There's a couple good documentaries out there. One I, that I can, I remember right now is Corman's World that is worth definitely worth a watch. Probably on YouTube. I know they're on the Roku. And there's a there's this book, uh, I think Corman wrote it. What, what was it called? How I Made... How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. Yeah. Well worth a read if you get a chance. I could just gush about Corman all all day, and you know how important he is. If you if you watch one of these documentaries and you hear these, like Nicholson and uh, Scorsese and all these other guys talk about how important 
mm-hmm. Roger Corman is to the film industry. Yeah. Or, you know, was as it was going along, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. It's amazing. It's really amazing to hear that from from these people who are regarded as giants in their field. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Well, you know, I mean, these people are giants in their field and they've made such a big name for themselves. And it feels to me, I mean, because well, we... We love Roger Corman's stuff, and so to me, he's just as big a name as they are, but maybe not so much to the general populace. Yeah, well, he hasn't made the millions and millions of dollars yeah, like they have, have. Yeah, you know, on for the big Hollywood pictures that they, you know, they're known for and all. Right. Well, because he didn't want to be tied down to other people's vision. Yeah, he wanted to do his own thing. Yeah. And he did. I totally respect that. Oh yeah, yeah, and that's one of the reasons why he's the man. Yeah. I mean, you know. Yeah. Man, yeah, I think about that's about all I got because I could just, like I said, I could just say how much I like him over and over again. Yep. Well, you know, he's he's got tons and tons of, of material to talk about, yeah. and we could go on. Do but... yourself a favor and go watch a Roger Corman picture tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Very well worth it. Yeah. Well, I guess there's uh, one thing left to do, Rob. <laughs> Prove that the world revolves around Planet of the Apes. Well, how are you going to pick anything to make Roger Corman? Well, because you can connect. Roger Corman's <laughs> worked with so many people. Everything's going to relate. Everybody. It's going to. Yeah. You can pick anything. And I mean, you know, you can pick. Pick a couple and do it. Uh, Death Race 2000. Okay. David Carradine. Uh, David Carradine was in Circle of Iron with Roddy McDowell. Well, that was fast. <laughs> All right. Oh, the Poe the po pictures. Uh, you know, you take Vincent Price. Uh, Vincent Price was. Egghead on the Batman series. Roddy McDowell was bookworm on the Batman series. (laughs) So for this very special edition of The World Revolves Around Planet of the Apes, it's temporarily named The World Revolves Around Roger Corman. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you take Rock and Roll High School, you know, and you got, oh, who's in that? Um, Mary Warrenov. Mary Warrenov. Well, then you go to Death Race 2000. Death Race 2000. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much to choose from. There's no way you can uh, not relate it back to Planet of the Apes this time, I think. Paul Bartel, not Paul Bartel. Um, you take take the Fantastic Four picture. Ah, right. Okay, the Fantastic Four picture. Let me think a second. The beginning of that. Mm-hmm. The professor that's instructing Reed and Doom in the college. Yeah. Is oh god, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. He was Commandant Lassard in Police Academy. Okay. Okay. Yeah. The first Police Academy. Kim Cattrall was in it. Kim right. Cattrall was Vixus in Star Trek. Star Trek, she was a Vulcan. Right. And, of course, Spock's dad was Mark Leonard. Right. Who was Urko on the Planet Apes TV series. So <laughs> you take anything. Corman, there's so many people to choose from. It's not even not even fun. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's too easy. Yeah. Well done. Well, you have once again proven that the world does indeed revolve around Planet of the Apes. And Roger Corman. And Roger Corman. <laughs> Well done. Yeah. So, hey, you know, check out our Facebook page and drop us a line on what you like, what you don't like, uh, suggestions. You can see all the pictures from this presentation, this podcast about Corman and everything else, all the pictures from all the other ones we've done. And yeah, hope to hear from you. Indeed. Thanks for the suggestion, Tim. Yeah. Yeah. That, this was fun. This was fun. Yeah. We'll do some more. Yeah. All so right. That's about it. Yeah. Till next time. Thanks for listening. Good night, everybody. Good night.